0: Up. welcome to i communicate on full service radio 830 wcrn to join the conversation call 508-871-7000 now here's your host mark altman
1: welcome to i communicate i'm your host mark altman and the president and the founder of Mindset Go, where we help leaders, teams, and individuals become more confident and effective communicators. Boy, that's a mouthful. I gotta tell you, every time I say that, I say, man, that's a lot to say. But and anyway, you know, each week we do a show to help people become more effective at communication because communication is such a broad topic. It covers so much and with so many people. And today, our topic is around recruiting and job interviewing. And I often think about what makes interviewing so difficult as the interviewer, not the interviewee. We know as an interviewee, it is incredibly difficult and the host of challenges that go with that. But what makes being an interviewer difficult? And I have, I've always had a fascination with interviewing because I think it's one of those practices that only gets more difficult the better you get at it and the more experience you have. And what's interesting to me, when I talk to leaders about interviewing, and I say, do you think you're a good interviewer? And usually the answer I get is, yeah, I think so, or pretty good. And then if I say, well, how do you know you're a good interviewer? Because most leaders I speak to have either never had someone sit in with them on their interviews and provide them either positive or constructive feedback, or even if they have, the last time it happened was many years ago. So most leaders have not had feedback at all or have not had feedback for a long time on their interviewing skills. And what I also see happen is, if you're an executive and you have direct reports at the management level of leadership that are also providing the functional task of interviewing, have you set in with your directs? Have you actually given feedback to the people that are interviewing under you for the same reason? And if you have, is the feedback you're giving really based around are they interviewing with the same approach or techniques that you use? In other words, is there one right way? Is it your way to interview or are you giving them more broad and general feedback on being an effective interviewer? And look, it's complex. The point I'm making is there's no not one right way. It's not an exact science. There are several ways to interview, there are several styles to interview, and the goals of an interview can be very different. So, but the first question is, have you given feedback to someone who reports to you that does interviewing, and have you received feedback to have a basis to know what are your strengths and what are your areas of improvement as an interviewer. So as we delve into this today, you know we're going to focus on a very particular area in interviewing today and that's emotional intelligence. How to show emotional intelligence as an interviewer and how to gauge the emotional intelligence of a job applicant, especially who is applying to be in a leadership position. How do you gauge whether a person applying for a leadership position has a strong emotional intelligence. And that's where we're gonna focus on today. Now look, when you start an interview, there's very basic fundamental questions people ask. Where do you wanna be in five years? They'll ask about weaknesses, they'll ask to tell me about yourself, describe a tough time in your life and how you handled it. There's all these generic questions that are asked in the beginning of a job interview. But I ask, I typically ask as my first question is what stood out about the job description itself and what stood out about the company that made you want to interview for this position. Because not only does that tell me how much effort they made to really understand the job the job description and the company itself, it tells me what are the specific things that really resonated with them that attract them to their job? that may demonstrate their characteristics, qualities, and again, the things that connected with them. And the reason why I like to start with that first question is because it speaks to self-awareness. You know, are you going through reading all these job descriptions and one after the other just applying for every job in sight? Or are you being selective? Or are you self-aware of the things you're specifically looking for to know what may be a great fit for you? So right out of the gate, I use an emotional intelligence question to gauge self-awareness. Now, preparation is really important, you know, and I find a lot of people who do career coaching, and I do career coaching, but I find a lot of people who do career coaching when it comes to interviewing tend to get people prepared for the most common interview questions. And how do you want to answer those questions, right? Right. The thing is, is if you're prepared, if you're over-prepared, and know exactly how you want to answer certain questions, you can often sound scripted, and you can often come across as not authentic, which is exactly not how you want to come across in a job interview. And the thing about interviewing is, interviewing is easily gained. People who interview for jobs often have spent an inordinate, inordinate amount of time researching roles, understanding common questions, as I just alluded to, and, you know, really are so prepared that you may not be getting their true sense of self. So how do you interview for empathy? How do you interview for curiosity? And ultimately, how do you interview for emotional intelligence? And my goal in the beginning of an interview, knowing that most people in an interview can often come across as nervous from the get-go, especially in the first few minutes, is my goal is to make people comfortable, is to create a sense of psychological safety, to know that every answer, right or wrong, their, their chances of getting the job isn't, aren't riding on their exact answers, c- because I want people to be truthful, I want people to be vulnerable, I want people to be authentic. So I'm trying to create a culture in a job interview as an interviewer where I'm making people feel safe. I'm not guaranteeing anything. What I am guaranteeing is that I want to interview someone that's authentic and genuine and is going to speak the truth. And even then, you still don't technically know. But the point is, that's what I'm trying to create. So psychological safety. How do you create psychological safety in a job interview? Well, let them know just that. Let them know that every answer is not riding on the decision. And when I think of emotional intelligence related to job interviewers, the first thing is, if you're an interviewer, here's how you have to demonstrate emotional intelligence before the interview even starts. Number one, you have to be aware of your mood and energy going into the interview. If it's in the middle of the day at 2 o'clock in the afternoon and you've been running from meeting to meeting and have a hundred things on your mind, you may not be totally present during that job interview. And you may make decisions on whether you like or dislike a candidate based on how present you are at the interview. You know, are you feeling rushed? Are you feeling impatient? Are you feeling tired? All of those characteristics could inherently affect how you perceive the person being interviewed. From a motivation perspective, am I creating psychological safety to motivate a person to feel comfortable and to be honest? From an empathy perspective, if you put too much into the beginning of an interview, first impressions, which are important, don't get me wrong, first impressions are really important, but sometimes people start out and they really struggle. You know, I watched an interview on 60 Minutes recently about how people with autism and that are on the autism spectrum struggle to get jobs mainly because of the anxiety, one of the main factors being that the anxiety when they interview that shows in the early stages of a discussion. And so if you're interviewing someone, a person comes across as awkward or anxious, you may make a snap judgment or a decision right of the way that you don't think the person's the right fit when it may just be that they're anxious and they struggle at the beginning of the interview, hence the importance of creating a culture of psychological safety. So, understanding what people are up against coming into an interview, that's where empathy comes in in emotional intelligence. So, before you can ask questions to understand a prospective leader's level of emotional intelligence, you need to be able to model and demonstrate it yourself using self-awareness, creating um, a culture to motivate people to feel safe, empathizing that they might be anxious and nervous in the beginning, and using self-management to be aware of your body language, your tone, your word choice, and that you're listening to understand and not listening to reply. All those are key aspects of prepping for an interview as an interviewer before it even starts. So when we come back from our first break, we're going to start to get into some of those questions that help you gauge a prospective leader's emotional intelligence. For I Communicate, I'm Mark Altman. We'll be right back.
0: Now, I Communicate Continues on full service radio 830 WCRN. Once again, here's your host, Mark Altman.
1: Okay, welcome back to I Communicate. I'm Mark Altman and we're talking about interview interviewing and we're talking about the opportunity to be able to gauge the emotional intelligence of a prospective applicant that's applying for a leadership role and this could be at the C-suite level it could be at the director level it could be at the management level and you know emotional intelligence shows up so much in behavioral interviews from how self-aware people are of not only their strengths and weaknesses knowing how people perceive them, knowing how people, the experience they have with processes, times they've taken steps to improve. You can see how they regulate their emotions regarding how and when they respond, how and when they react, and how and when they're triggered. And then you can even learn if they value empathy and listening as well as motivational strategies for themselves and others. So it's huge. If you hire someone that's emotionally intelligent, you're not guaranteed that they will be successful. But if you hire that someone that is not emotionally intelligent, I can guarantee you that they either won't be successful or they will create dysfunction in conflict amongst your team. And you know, I used to have a funny line about dating. So several years ago, I did... I mean, speed dating, which I loved. I thought it was fun. And for those of you who don't know what speed dating is, you basically go to a a bar or a restaurant and you basically have five minutes with seven or eight different people of the opposite sex, although I assume there's even same-sex speed dating at this point, and you get five minutes to talk to them. And I always used to joke with people. I said, getting to know someone for five minutes You're not going to know if they're a fit, but you're sure as heck going to know if they're not. And that's what I mean about emotional intelligence. It's it's such a critical set of leadership core competencies that you can't guarantee it'll be the fit if they have it, but I can almost guarantee you in many cases it won't be if they don't. So let's talk about some of the questions that you can ask to gauge emotional intelligence. So one of them is, tell me about a time you experienced a conflict at work. So what are we after there? Tell me an experience about a time you experienced a conflict at work. We don't want to just know about the conflict. We really want to understand what what caused the conflict. We want to understand the perception of the person's role who we're interviewing in the conflict and how they facilitated a solution to the conflict. And frankly, you could even argue what, what they will put in place, if situationally appropriate, to prevent that same conflict from happening again. Now, what's interesting about behavioral interviewing and emotional intelligence questions are, when you, when you ask a question, you're first going to learn where they go with it. So if someone says, when you ask them, tell me about a time you experienced a conflict at work, their initial explanation of the conflict will tell you a lot are they mentioning what their role was in the conflict what their role was in solving the conflict what their role was in facilitating mediation among potential team members in the conflict so you get a lot you get a lot of opportunity to learn how people deal with how people motivate change how people what kind of mediation and negotiation skills they have What kind of buy-in, perhaps, that leader has from their existing or past teams? There's a lot you can learn from sharing a time they've experienced conflict at work. But ultimately, is that person self-aware enough of their role in maybe causing the conflict and their role in what they did to solve the conflict? So that's why that's a great emotional intelligence question. Now, another great question is, Tell me about a time you experienced a setback and how you dealt with it. Now, what's interesting about this question is you're talking about resiliency. And with the pandemic, we so often hear for the last 15, 16 months now about burnout, about losing work-life balance, about the challenges of working at home in remote leadership, and how people are just in not Most people in, in the workplace now are in a, w- a weird place. They may be doing some soul-searching. They may be understanding if their current job is the right job for them. They may be searching on whether their current company is the right company for them. So people are in a strange place. And, you know, I use this with salespeople. I often talk about if you were to work with a sales team and do professional development in a sales team, one of the skills in training areas for sales teams would be resiliency. And how about customer service? Resiliency. You know if you're in sales and you have a slump or you felt like you were gonna get a sale and it slipped through your fingers and you lost it at the last second and you're feeling down and you're feeling frustrated and you're beating yourself up. What are the side effects of that? How quickly do you bounce? I call it bounce forward instead of bouncing back. How quickly do you bounce forward from setbacks, from slumps, from being talked to in a condescending or critical way that you take personally? So resiliency is huge. And think about this. If you're trying to gauge the resiliency level of a leader, why is that critically important? It's critically important because they're modeling the behavior of resiliency. So if the leader gets in slumps, has extended moods, bouts of low energy, not really engaged in their job, how do you think that's going to play in the example they're setting for the team? So a resilient leader, someone who has coping mechanisms, someone who uses mindfulness, someone who is an emotionally intelligent leader to recognize, become self-aware when they're not feeling resilient. And then they can manage themselves using those coping mechanisms, seeking support, doing the things necessary to get themselves right, uh, back on the right track as a leader. To be able to effectively motivate themselves and to effectively be able to motivate others. It's huge. I mean, you can give people There's, I have Mindset Go has lots of assessments. We have one on resiliency. But people can answer it the way they want to answer it. But ultimately, when you're in a face-to-face interview and you're talking to someone about a time they experienced a setback and how they dealt with it, it's huge. And you know what's interesting is you'll often hear a person being interviewed say, well, do you want it to be personal or professional? The example. And I always say, whatever you want. Because I'm more interested in what are their mechanisms and coping strategies they use to stay resilient, and to be able to bounce forward, whether it's personal or professional, it doesn't really matter to me. And when you think about it, it's not just the example of when they experienced that setback and how they dealt with it. What did they learn? What are they still doing? What, what behaviors and habits are they sustaining around resiliency to this day? Because if they tried a strategy four years ago but they're not still using it today. Well, it's nice that they did it back then, but what have, what have you sustained? So you could also come back with on that question, if someone gives you an answer about a personal or professional example, you could say, how have you carried that forward through to today during the pandemic? What are some times you maybe had to utilize that strategy to stay resilient and bounce forward? Do you consider that you've had resilient teams? What are some examples of, of, of uh, that your team, individuals on your team have demonstrated that show they're resilient? I mean, these are critical questions. You know, we want to talk about ROI in the workplace. We want to use words like productivity, employee engagement, efficiency, being innovative. We, we throw those words around all the time. I often give executives the example that when you have weekly meetings that are one hour long with 20 people in those meetings, you're, you're investing, what, 1,040 hours of labor in those meetings over the course of a year. Man, those meetings better be really good to multiply 1,040 hours of labor times an executive salary when you think of the money being invested in those meetings. Well, here's my analogy. When you think of a resilient leader, Modeling behavior for a resilient team. Think about a team that stops being engaged. Stops being productive. Stops collaborating and communicating. Because they feel burned out. Because they feel overwhelmed and stressed and tired. Well, what happens if that team stays like that for a week or two? Well, what's two weeks times an entire team's labor around productivity, efficiency, do you get what I'm saying? So a resilient leader gauging a leader's resilience is an enormously important part of an interview. And as an interviewer, you know your ability or inability to be resilient. So it, all, it often can help you gauge your strength or weakness in that area as a, as a byproduct of that question. So when we come back for our next segment, we're going to talk about more questions around gauging the emotional intelligence of a leader during interviews. So for Mark Altman, this has been iCommunicate. We'll be right back.
0: You're listening to I Communicate on full service radio 830 WCRN. Once again, here's your host, Mark
1: Altman. Okay, welcome back to iCommunicate. I'm Mark Altman. We're talking about gauging emotional intelligence in an interview as the interviewer and we're talking about strategies and questions to take when doing that so and we're talking about different questions and so what's interesting is one of the questions that I think can be really powerful is when you start a new job how do you adapt to your work environment and what's really interesting about that question is it forces the interviewee to consider something because to me that's a really vague question and that could go a number of different directions. So one of the things I like to look for when I'm interviewing something especially around emotional intelligence is their ability to be assertive and to get clarity. So in my perfect world I would love for someone to say when you say adapt to your work environment meaning what like adapting as far as getting to know the people Adapting to getting to know the processes all of the above. I think it's an opportunity to get some clarity and during an interview I like when people seek clarity because before you answer something if there's a doubt In your mind as if someone being interviewed that you don't know specifically what the person's asking Getting clarity being assertive and asking good questions is a very powerful way to show communication skills in general and what's interesting is People with high emotional intelligence really focus on relationships with their bosses and coworkers from day one. So when you're onboarding, when you're adapting to a new work environment, I want to hear a big part of their answer be a focus on the relationships with the people they're getting to know. We don't want it to focus narrowly on getting up to speed on tasks, the environment, the culture, which are all important things, and should be a part of the answer, for sure. But we want it to focus on how to build rapport and trust with their tr- with their team, how to bu- build rapport and trust with their peers, other leaders, whether at the management, director, or C-suite level, and how to build rapport and trust with their new boss. And I think what's key in that question is how do you adapt to a new environment not only focuses on the relationships and the people, but it focuses on managing up, down, and sideways. And also, it can focus on what we just spoke about, resiliency. There can be a lot of stress and pressure at the beginning of a new job, trying to learn so much in a short period of time to prove yourself. So how do you manage yourself in those situations? You know, when you're feeling stressed and overwhelmed. And I often like examples. And for a lot of executives, that's innate. That's obvious. You know, when people, when you ask someone a question an interview, you want to hear them give an actual example, proof, proof of concept, proof. It's one thing to say you're good at something. It's one thing to say you've done something. It's another thing to give examples. You know, there's an emotional intelligence around that. How do you differentiate yourself? How do you stand out from your peers as an interviewee? So I wanna hear examples. So when it comes to how do you adapt to your new work environment, can they reference times when they've been in a new environment in the past and how they adapted and how they coped? And here's, here's the biggest. Can they share ways they seamlessly integrated into the, their team and the company's mission? So that's a really great opportunity again to gauge self-awareness, engage probably one of the hardest things to gauge in an interview which is how much you can trust someone. But are you hearing the person give examples that would make you feel like, yeah, I could see why their team trusted them. I could see why this person had a team that would buy into their vision. I mean, are those things resonating with you? Are you, are you hearing them communicate and convey things that resonate with you, that are consistent with not only your core values, but the organization's core values and culture. I mean that's what you're really looking for there. Now when it comes to the strengths and weaknesses question, this is really this is really fascinating to me. I I recently did an interview where I asked a prospective executive what if he was self-aware of his biggest areas of improvement. And see, the first thing is the word weakness. The word weakness is a trigger for people because weakness, this is how most people being interviewed are trained. You better be able to answer that biggest weakness question. But see, when it comes to emotional intelligence, what sticks out to me about your biggest area of development and growth, which is what I asked this executive, I want to see how self-aware they are. Now remember something. When it comes to emotional intelligence, and you ask that question, this person being interviewed could answer that question based on three things, feedback they've gotten from a team member on an area they have to improve, feedback they've received from a boss on how they have to improve, or self-awareness of their own blind spots in areas they need to improve. So, if you struggle to answer that question as an executive, that concerns me because you could have received that information from three potential buckets your team, your boss, or yourself. And frankly, there's a fourth bucket, even your peers. So, if you don't know an area, a genuine, authentic area you need to improve, that's a red flag. And I'm going to tell you what the red flag is it's a red flag around a core value of learning, wanting to improve, valuing growth. Now listen, I I will fully admit that's a core value of mine as a person, as a business owner, as an executive, as a coach, as a trainer. So just because someone doesn't have a core value to improve or learn, it doesn't necessarily mean they can't be a leader or a good leader. It just means that that's a critical core value I see and being an effective leader and if you aren't aware and you're not here's the thing what I would really worry about is you're not asking okay if you don't if you haven't had a performance review from your boss if you said to me mark I don't know I don't know what my boss would say are my areas of improvement I would say have you asked have you sought out that information even if it isn't a formal performance review have you asked? And if it's someone on your team, do you initiate that kind of feedback from your team? Do you do 360 reviews? Do you, in team meetings, ask them how you can make this meeting more engaging or effective? How you can make your coaching sessions and one-on-ones more impactful? So even if people aren't giving it to you, that's not an excuse. Do you seek it? So Understanding if someone's aware of what their areas of improvement are, another question to ask is, what is that based on? You know, is that based on feedback you've gotten from someone specifically? Is that based on self-awareness you have? And if it's based on self-awareness you have, how did you become self-aware that you have that problem or that you have that area of development? And I'm going to give you a great example of that. Let's say you ask someone, you know, what's your area of development? They say, well, I'm not the most engaging speaker. And you said, well, how do you you know that? What are you basing that on? And the person says, well, to be honest, the last time I did a presentation among my current leadership team, I was looking at the body language and I noticed there weren't a lot of questions being asked. That's a great, powerful answer because that means the person Reads between the lines. That means the person notices things. So instead of being on autopilot and just thinking they're a good speaker and thinking they're motivating and inspiring people and thinking they're impacting behaviors, they realize they're not. And they became self-aware. And they understand that's a blind spot. That's powerful. That's what you're looking for. That's emotionally intelligent. And then, and then to really drive the point home? How about if they say, if they can tell you what they've done to address their self-awareness? So they say all that to you, and then you say, you know, since you've realized that, you know, have you taken any steps to improve your executive presence in that area? And what if they tell you they have taken some specific executive steps, and they share what those are? That's how to turn a strength weakness question on its ear. And you might spend 10 minutes of an interview starting with what are you self-aware of, how did you become self-aware of it, who told you, have you done anything about it, and if so, what? That's A-plus level interviewing right there. So instead of throwing out the generic question of what's your biggest weakness and having someone give you the canned, air, canned answer they've been coached and rehearsed for months and months, delve in deeper, ask insight-based questions to really understand the emotional intelligence, where this person's core values are around learning, growth, and development. So, we will touch upon a few last questions around emotional, gauging emotional intelligence when interviewing leaders. For Mark Altman, this is I communicate. We'll be right back for our last segment.
0: Now, I Communicate continues on full-service radio, 830 WCRN. Once again, here's your host, Mark Altman.
1: Okay, welcome back to I Communicate. We're talking about gauging the level of emotional intelligence in leaders. And look, there's a couple of quick questions I want to add in before we get to a few big final ones. One is, what are your strategies for keeping work-life balance? It's funny, right? When you're interviewing for a job, you're trying to put your best foot forward. You're trying to demonstrate qualities about your work ethic and your commitment and your dedication. But work-life balance is interesting. It, It speaks to the resilience question I spoke about earlier in the show around modeling behavior. And do you want to set that example that you're working 60, 70 hours a week and you expect your team to do the same? Well, that's an important question because that may not fit into the culture of your company. And a lot of leaders, old school leaders, still are attached to the first person in and last person out is how you gauge performance and productivity and impact. And that just isn't. That's, that's just so, such an antiquated thought process. So you do want to know what their strategies are for keeping work-life balance because the people who have strategies for work-life balance tend to be more productive in the long run. Help foster a more healthy and positive environment. Keep your health insurance costs down as a company. Do you know what you need and what your team will need to be successful in the long run over the long haul? Not just short-term quick fixes. So work-life balance strategies are huge. You know, then you look at what's something you've done in the past year to grow professionally. Well, we just talked about that in the last segment. You know, what did you notice? What prompted you to, to take a step to grow professionally? And then here's a big piece to that question. If they tell you the steps they've taken to address a blind spot, to address an area of growth and development, Ask them how have they applied that into their personal and professional lives? And how does that fit into their larger growth plan? Because I have to tell you, it's something I talk about in training and coaching all the time. I can be the best trainer in the world. People could leave my training and coaching saying, wow that was engaging, that was stimulating, we learned so much, we have pages of notes, so what? Like that's not my benchmark for being a good trainer or coach. I, l- I want to be liked like everybody else. I want people to learn a lot and get a lot out of it. But my benchmark is, Have you are you comfortable and confident and motivated and willing to apply what you just learned? Because to sit in a, a 60 minute, two hour, half day training and then have, have the notes sit on your desk and never apply. Who cares? So that question of what's something you've done in the past year to grow professionally, you can tell me you took an online course. You can tell me you subscribe to the Harvard Business Review blog about how to be a better leader. I don't care. I want to know what you're doing with the information you're learning. Are you applying it? Are you sustaining habits? Have you replaced existing habits? Have you made changes in your behavior? Have you facilitated an environment where your team has become more productive because you're doing those things? That's what matters. So for those of you who really value reading those blogs and taking online courses and hiring coaches, kudos to you, genuine kudos to you. Those are huge steps, you're you're basically putting time aside to prioritize learning and being better. Just remember that's half the battle. And it's a great half, but the other half is applying what you've learned and sustaining the habits. And that's why asking about what you've done in the past year to grow professionally is also a powerful question. Now I want to finish with two really important questions, okay? One of them is, what or who inspires you and why, also what motivates you, as kind of a combo question. What motivates someone is a, it's all about emotional intelligence. What motivates someone? Now think of the mindset of someone who answers that question. What motivates you? Well, they may say money. Of course, if you're in sales and you're interviewing, you expect the person to say money. You get nervous if they don't say money, frankly. It may be money. It may be the mission of what the company does. It may be working with amazing co-workers that you can collaborate that become kind of a second family to you. It may be career growth. Could be a lot of things. It may be work-life balance and flexibility, great benefits. Could be a hundred different things. But you want to know what motivates people. Because... As a leader, one of your primary jobs is to motivate and inspire and develop people. So in a job interview, understanding what motivates them and how it fits into their long-term growth and development in that company or in any other company is a critical aspect. How can you develop leaders? How can you inspire leaders if you don't understand what motivates them? And the same goes for the team. You've got to know what will inspire and motivate your team. And I have to be honest with you, I like to hire people who want and need a job. If you're someone who's motivated by flexibility and work-life balance, which is I've alluded to earlier in the show, is very, very important, I'm glad. That's great. But you may not love your job. You may be just doing this job because it pays the bills and checks off. You may not be inspired to go above and beyond or go the extra mile. That's my value. doesn't mean it's the right way. So I like to understand people's core values, who they look up to, why they look up to that person. I look up to Bill Belichick, not because I'm a Patriots fan, because he's sustained buy-in for so long. How many leaders can be in the same place for 20 years with hundreds of different employees going through there, and they still drink the Kool-Aid, they still buy in? And one of his primary leadership principles is he treats everybody the same. Nobody gets a free pass. Tom Brady is treated like the punter. And you could argue, and I think rightfully so, that Bill Belichick towards the end of Tom Brady's tenure Took that to such an extreme, he was so rigid, he ended up losing the best quarterback of all time. And you may be right. But the bottom line is that he stuck to his core value, which is nobody gets any extra privileges or perks or priorities. We treat everybody the same, so we create this level of expectation and standard where everybody's on the same level. I admire that. I like that. When I coach kids in sports, I don't, I don't treat the prima donnas or the star kids any more, better than I teach the worst kid on the team, talent-wise. So, that's why it's important to know who people look up to, why they look up to them, what are their core values, and what... them. Now, lastly, I want to finish with this. How are you most likely to be misunderstood by others? This is emotional intelligence to a T. What vibes do you put out in the workplace? And do you understand the impact those vibes have on others? When you act a certain way, when you communicate a certain way, when you lead a certain way, do you understand the impact those things have? You can't manage everybody the same way. We're all individuals. Everybody has to be treated differently. I've said this on the show before. When I hear older generations complain about the uniqueness of millennials, and how they need a sense of purpose, and how they allegedly can't make up their mind, and they want to make a difference. So what? That just means they're different, just like you're different. Everybody has different qualities and characteristics. And I want to know, when I ask that question, how are you most likely to be misunderstood by others, I want to know if you're aware of the perception that you give off, the examples you, you model And are you able to adapt? Can you give me examples of how you have adapted based on how you may be misunderstood? If you're really passionate as a leader, people may perceive that as being too much, being overwhelming. If you're really quiet as a leader, people may perceive that as unassertive. Neither may be true. But if you give off the vibe of being unassertive or overwhelming, and you know that, and you've been misunderstood, and you have that awareness, how do you adjust? How do you adapt? So when you're interviewing someone, engaging their emotional intelligence, their ability to adapt to people of all generations, of all communication styles, of all levels of experience their ability to impact and influence change that's enormous for an organization now more than ever so that's a sample of some questions and some strategies around interviewing that you can use to truly gauge an executive's emotional intelligence so thank you for joining us for another edition of i communicate i'm mark altman we'll see you next time
0: you've been listening to i communicate with your host mark altman Join us again each week at this time on Full Service Radio, WCRN.